Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2023. I am one of your hosts, Phil Esco. I'm your special guest host, Emily St. James, sitting in for your normal host, your mother, whose life I've slowly replaced. <laughs> With us today, Lola Kelly, back on the podcast. It's been a beat. I, I, it's it's it it's been it's been too long, quite frankly, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But um, but you're back, and back, I reached out to you, and I was like, "We're doing, you know, Emily and I are doing 92." Um, you sent me a list of movies. This was on that list: Poison Ivy, a movie that I remember existing <laughs> in 1992. <laughs> um, I, I, I I'll give my perspective of this film only insofar as that I'd never seen it before. Um, and, but, but I knew it existed because it felt like a fulcrum point in the Drew Barrymore arc of her career in terms of this sort of moment when she was, um, trying to kind of show that she wasn't a child actor anymore and wanted to kind of do edgier, sexier things. Um, and this was kind of the beginning of that sort of portion of her career to a certain degree there's also like a bunch of straight to video sequels to this movie that i acknowledge like as of working in a video store knowing that like there was a poison ivy 3 somehow um so like these are all the things that were kind of going on in my head as i hit play on this movie but i want to obviously ask you lola why was this one of your picks well 
I when I sent you the list, mm -hmm. I gave you notes for all of the reasons did. I you wanted did. to do each one or mm -hmm. what I wanted to like bring to the table. Yeah. And for this one, all I said was for gay reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and I stand by that. <laughs> yeah, this I mean, Emily, I'm I'm looking very forward to your uh queer phobia um rating at the end of this episode for this movie because I feel like this movie has I mean, not particularly subtle gay undertones, but I mean, yeah. Yeah, this is a movie. This is a movie about kissing your best friend. <laughs> it really is a movie yeah. about kissing your best friend. In fact, that kiss can wake you from hallucinations. Uh, I mean, for what that's true, like. love's kiss always does. Like honestly, <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's how it is. So, true so Lola, when you saw, you saw yes. this movie, I'm assuming not in '92, but when you were younger, I'm assuming right yeah i didn't see it in theaters i saw right. it uh i saw it i think the first time i saw it was on television mm. and i only caught part of it but i remember being uh by television i mean cable like i yes it was not like a dvd because yeah. i remember i only caught a part of it and i was just transfixed by drew barrymore i was Sure. Horny and a preteen <laughs> and queer sure, and confused sure. and suddenly less confused. Sure. And I sought it out immediately on DVD. And I watched this film, I don't even know how many times. It kind of became really? this thing that I would put on in the background and study almost, but then also watch it kind of passively. But I'm very curious, one phenomena that was really interesting to me about rewatching it was, and I'm curious, Emily, if you ever do this or find this, is that I thought the film was way more overtly queer than it actually was. Like my teenage brain just invented queer sex scenes that were not there. <laughs> like I rewatched it and I was like, what is this? What is all this sex with this guy? What? <laughs> Where did this come from? And it's funny, I was I was seeing this uh non-binary queer person uh in like November and we rewatched the truth about cats and dogs. And we were shocked. We had not seen it since we were teenagers, horny teenagers, with a starvation for representation. And we totally had invented that that was a queer film and that they just like ended up falling in love with each other in the process of chasing this guy. And I feel like there's like a, a Mandela effect, but for queer people that can happen sometimes, like a Berenstein Bears, but gay. <laughs> I don't know if, if, yeah sure sure yeah, yeah I don't yeah. know if anyone else did this definitely thought it was more queer than it was Emily I mean I'm I'm in a very weird position where like um when I saw Chasing Amy one of the few like movies that like had a queer person in it for all its faults in the 1990s I was still like, well, she ends up with the guy so that, you know, like I, in my brain, you know, that became like, I, I had to really self-police my own queerness basically. So like, if I saw a thing that had queer undertones, I would just like not even notice them. And so now I just notice queer undertones in everything. Like, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying, you know, I, I, I like, especially when they're like two teenage girls who have a very close friendship 
I mean, that's inherently queer. There's always something a little bit queer in that relationship. There's always something a little bit queer when two teenage boys have a really close homosocial relationship. Like, that's just how teenagers are. It's like, the, you know, they might start kissing at any moment. But like, um, uh, yeah, I don't, it is it is interesting to me because now, you know, I read queer undertones into everything. But also now I'm an adult. So like, I, I have a, a sort of richer understanding of this. So, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I have a... What we're going to learn about is I have a weird relationship with sex, and I'm looking forward to all of us talking about it today. Can't wait. I, I'll just yeah. say this, though. I, you know, <laughs> it, is, it is interesting how – I'm trying to think of the best way to articulate this, but it's just it, – it, uh, it is frustrating how binary people's perspectives are on just relationships, period. Like, mm-hmm. I do feel as though, you know uh, – the the immediate projection on everything is just a very rigid one which i think is just boring if nothing else just like boring i i I, you know what i mean like as as a viewer and as a storyteller and and just in terms of uh writing characters and and enjoying characters to try to sort of make everything really black and white i just think does a giant disservice to the human experience that I'm just sort of like, why do we do that? I, I don't, I don't really understand that. I think I, I'm sorry. I'm, no, I'm going to, but I think, um, yeah. I think people are really, especially people kind of older than us, not just not exclusively, but often yeah. are really freaked out when they can't break something down into a binary, you know, like I think the vast majority of us are a little bit queer, even just in terms of like, sure. you've seen someone, of the same gender as you or someone, you know, not on the, not in the traditional gender binary. And you've been like, well, that person's really hot. Like there's a queerness yeah. in that, that I think most people just are scared to explore. So they're like, well, you're gay or you're straight, you know, you're male or you're female, you're whatever. And like, I think, I think a lot about how, when I was in high school, I was a, a pretty straight teenage girl, but everybody thought I was a guy. So everybody was like, you're a gay man. <laughs> and like, Uh, But then, like, my most significant relationship before I met my wife was with another girl, and it was this, like, weird psychosexual, like, poison ivy situation. (laughs) So, like, it is this this thing of, like, the 90s were a weird time to be trying to figure this out because... Oh, my God, yes. Like, um, I remember one time, Emily's... This is just me talking about my past now, evidently. I remember one time, like, there was this guy, and we were friends, and then we started making out, and it was the first time I'd ever been kissed where, like, something in the middle of it, he, like, figured out I was a girl, and was, it's, like, it flipped over, and I was like, okay, this is great, this is good, and then I never had that again, you know? Like, it's, it's so, obviously, figuring out who you are as an adolescent is so tricky already, and then you add on queerness, and then you add on this extremely rigid 80s, 90s culture of, like, what is what, yeah. Anyway, what no, I'm trying I, to say, I, what yeah. I'm trying to say is that poison ivy fucking rules. <laughs> I was getting text messages from Emily last night being like, this movie fucking rips. Is this movie a masterpiece? I I mean, I, I came at this movie obviously from a different um vantage point. And I was watching it trying to sort of knowing Lola, you were coming on for this episode, and obviously knowing that I was doing this with Emily, I was like, I think this movie is going to speak to them more than this movie is going to speak to me. Um, so I'm 
incredibly excited to hear you guys sort of unpack, you know, the movie. But I also just think that this movie is, it was, and I, I think to some degree still is a little bit maligned as kind of a almost straight to video lurid kind of, you know, sexy thriller thing. And I think that does it obviously a giant disservice, but it's also interesting that, you know, Karina Longworth, who we had on uh, to talk about uh, basic instinct and consenting adults, and obviously is doing her erotic nineties um, miniseries right now, this is a part of that miniseries. And I do think that she's, you know, trying to reclaim it. Um, it's screened recently at, I believe the Las Vegas three, um, and and I do think that like people are trying to excavate this film a little bit and, and give it the, the credit that it deserves. I feel like part of why people didn't know what to do with it is actually your point about the binary, but sure. uh, expanding that even genre wise, I feel it's a noir. It's absolutely sure. a noir to me. And I think the reason why people love noir and don't like noir is because it's so filled with nuance and there isn't even a moral binary to it like there aren't good guys and bad guys and women behave in ways they're not supposed to and there's just a lot of human mess in noir and when you go back to like you know its origins that was kind of new and I think the messiness and lack of her being a clearly bad girl and the way that we, at least I felt so much for Ivy. Like I, she, you know, I felt she was absolutely the hero of the story and not the villain. And I think that, that I can see how audiences were expecting this like sexy movie where there's this bad girl. Um, I don't think it's a terribly erotic film I think that most of its sex scenes are very uncomfortable <laughs> and I love sex and sexiness but um yeah it's I think it's way more of a noir than like an erotic film yeah, yeah I mean it, it's forgive me if this is a basic take to some degree but I, I did find the the vertigo of it all playing into it a little bit for me you know obviously specifically yeah. in the in the the poison ivy mom sort of switcheroo if you will that's going on and and sort yeah. of projection and the various sort of um identity issues quote unquote that are going on throughout the film it is very noirish it's very hitchcockian and i i almost kind of i agree with you that it's not particularly sexy there's a lolita-esque component to poison ivy or to ivy that is sure, yeah. um but it's not particularly um sexy if that makes sense like it the, the movie doesn't feel it, it it's not what's the right word to it because of tom scarrett's character daryl and this sort of quarter life crisis that he's going through um there there's almost a a sadness to it if if that makes sense like there's this kind of pathetic kind of quality to it that that removes any kind of real eroticism if that makes sense i i, I can't i'm not sure that i'm articulating it uh as well as i could but i i do feel like that drive if you will 
um, in terms of what I can only assume is perhaps the audience that they were aiming for, which is sort of straight men that would conceivably want to have sex with Drew Barrymore, that drive that's going through the film um, is is not particularly effective, right? Like you're not you're not rooting for him to have sex with this. I guess what I'm saying is I was thinking about American beauty as I was watching this as well, right? Like thinking about the, the Kevin Spacey, Mina Suvari sort of scenario there. And that movie is very much committed to the idea of the audience should be rooting for Kevin Spacey to have sex with Mina Suvari. And I'm not convinced that this movie has the same commitment, which is a good thing, but yeah. Yeah. I, um, I don't know. I think this movie gains so much from being directed by Kat Shea, who's uh, sure. a director who's made some other really interesting films that are like, I don't think this is the best movie I've, I've seen by her, but like, this is very observant and captures a certain quality about sure. these, these girls' friendship. I think it is so important that it is framed through Sylvie's point of view. Mm-hmm. So even when she's not on screen, there's a quality to it that is like almost like her imagining Ivy with her dad or with her mom. And like there is this quality to it where she's like imagining herself as a sexual being and then having to realize like her parents are sexual beings. Her friend is a sexual being. And like the events of the movie happen. I'm not saying that she like dreams all of it, but it's so clearly subjectively framed through her point of view that there's this this desperate kind of terrifying quality to all of the the sex in it and like i was looking up this movie's history and it like played at sundance it was like you know a thing there so this is a movie that you know came in with aspirations of being a certain thing and then turned into a hit on video with you know straight men who wanted to have sex with drew barrymore so it became a different thing in in the imagination of people and i think that is unfair to this movie because i I don't know if I've said this already, but it rips. It's so good. Can I also say that, you know, very different movie, and and I and, and I don't necessarily want to put them on the same level because I think they're saying very different things. But I did think a little of Boys Don't Cry. Um, I did think a little bit of of just sort of that bond that exists um and and sort of like I think about Sylvie's character and her sort of lack of real understanding of how she feels about Ivy. Um, There's a real kind of um, sort of uh, she's at odds to some degree with how she feels. And, and I think that, I mean, Boys Don't Cry is, is more overtly a love story, obviously, and it's, it's doing different things, but I do think that Chloe in that movie is also struggling with her feelings and you're really sort of feeling that kind of push and pull and I think Sylvie's character, to your, to your point, Emily, um, having her as the protagonist and having that kind of inner struggle as the prism with which you see this film is kind of the only way to make this movie. But, um, the, yeah. The other thing I I thought was really exceptional about that point of view is that it felt like it nailed teenage perspective in a sure. way that sure. very few films do, like in a very <laughs> real way and messy way. And that opening shot now, like I was thinking about like the, the, even the way it shot, like female gaze versus male gaze and how it sort of flips POV, like the shots of her by the pool versus that opening shot. It's all very focused and drawing the audience's eye to what a teenage girl would be obsessing over, like her hair, her boots, 
her, her tattoo and she's sort of slow motion flowing through the air. And it, it just feels like it, it really invites us into that confusing and tense teenage perspective. And I, I grew up in LA. So it also is a film that felt specifically like LA teenagers. Like it was the anti-clueless in that, that sense of, yes. it felt like an extremely realistic depiction of what it was like to be a teenager in Los Angeles in the nineties. And yeah. the, yeah, I just think it really nailed that. And I thought that Kat Shea played with such interesting choices in showing us how to look at Ivy in those scenes where it's just her and Sylvie versus how Tom Skerritt's character looks at Ivy in the way that she shot it. I was just going to say that, like, I mean, two things came to mind as you were talking. The first is sort of, you know, poison Ivy as Cypher um, for whoever is looking at her. You know what I mean? She's sort of a skeleton key in terms of their perspectives um and what they're going through and what they need her to be for them which also makes ivy that much more of a tragic character because she doesn't you know what i mean she's her her identity seems to be what other people want her to be rather than what she actually is um so there's that but then the second thing i think that that this movie unfortunately was sort of tagged with um is that like the movie is so much more interesting than what it is on its face. And I think that like, listen, I love, I love a noir as much as anybody does. And, and that's all cool. But like the plot and what's going on is ultimately far less interesting than the subtext of what's going on in this movie. And I think that sometimes you can find, I'm sure we've seen this many times where um, what a movie is on its face uh, if people don't like that on the superficial level, it's discarded rather than sort of digging deeper. And I think that this movie, especially in 92, when people were most likely not, you know, looking to dig into sort of the subtextual, I think that that's another reason why I think this film probably wasn't embraced at the time. Yeah, but... the film got treated like Ivy, you know, like there's <laughs> Absolutely. this parallel there. <laughs> Absolutely. No, 100%. Yeah. I mean, I kept thinking of um, I kept thinking of Lolita. It is impossible to see a movie like this and not think about Lolita, but also um, Jamie Loftus's Lolita Pod, which is one of my favorite works of criticism of like the last ten years. And like what she does so beautifully in that podcast is talk about how this book is written by Vladimir Nabokov, who is a, a child sexual abuse survivor who's like writing all this stuff, and then the book gets interpreted as like a love story like a romance like and like this super this, horny I yeah mean. and like you know the, the the film adaptations it's like the one kubrick movie i actively don't like it's you know the yes the the adrian line one is is really creepy and it's just like there is this thing where because our culture was so dominated by the voices of cis straight white guys for so long there is not a way that you can make a movie like this and not have it be interpreted through Tom Skerritt's gaze, even when the movie's actively telling you not to, or when the book is actively telling you not to, as in Lolita. So like, it is this thing where a lot of these things have had to be reclaimed, or in the case of Lolita, which has always been acclaimed as a book, like reinterpreted and recontextualized by people who don't necessarily fit that that identity or perspective. I, I also think 
and not not to be too sort of glib about it, but like, I mean, if you're gonna give straight white men the chance to be horny, they're gonna embrace it and they're gonna wrap <laughs> their arms around it, and it, it it you know what I mean? I I truly like I don't mean to, I, but it, that's kind of what it comes down to a little bit, right? Like if if you're if if on its face. Lolita, this movie, whatever the case, if it's, you know what I mean? Like straight white men are going to do what straight white men do. It's fucking lame, but it's the truth. Yeah. I love that they don't, a lot of people just don't see how like repugnant and sad Tom Skerritt's (laughs) character is. (laughs) Like, I don't, I think they're like, yeah, like I'm that guy. He's Well, that's, I mean, that is, you know, no, he's like a sad old man. no one likes totally and that that's why like the whole american beauty thing is so kind of fascinating i mean obviously kenny and i did an episode on it for the 99 podcast but like you know a a movie that has not held up well uh, a movie that you know the kevin spacey thing is part of it too but still like that that movie revels in that idea of like oh you're a, a a white male boomer uh, you should be having sex with hot young women. Like, wh- wh- why? Why isn't that happening for you? It, it's it's just a very sort of uh, fucked up and sad perspective. What I like about Tom Skerritt and Ivy's relationship in this yeah. movie, um, and it's not his name is not Tom Skerritt. It's Daryl. It's Daryl. Appropriately, what, the most. What a Darryl. what a good name for that character. It's, yeah, yeah. Daryl. Yeah, Daryl. Uh, uh, one. What I like about this is. It, the movie gives him every possible excuse that a straight white guy in that situation might use. Well, she got me drunk. She came on to me, etc. And it still is so good at making him sad and pathetic and like, why don't you just go hang out with your hot wife? Instead, you're here with this teenage girl. And it's, yeah, yeah like like the, the quality of this movie where like Ivy is assuming the life of, of the mother is so much more within Sylvie's point of view. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the things that I think is fascinating about it. But like, this movie is very clear that Daryl is a sad old man. He is. No, absolutely. And it it, it also sort of, he's so disempowered is kind of the thing too. Like he's just, he's, he's so clearly a man struggling to hold on to any sort of, um, relevancy ultimately like even in his job you're seeing that slip through his fingers too it's just it's really it's it's it's, a whiny teenager (laughs) he really is is. emotionally Um, like i think he's the whiniest teenager in the movie strangely like i think that yeah he just is so annoyingly (laughs) teenagey and Oh my God. Can we talk about that line that you said the thing about him? Get She got me drunk. One of my favorite lines in the movie as an alcoholic was because uh, she, she tries to give him champagne and then says something like, oh, I forgot you can't. And he says, oh, I'm not an alcoholic. I had a drinking problem, but I don't drink anymore. So it's fine. <laughs> like glug, 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 glug. It's just so great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm not an alcoholic. I had a drinking problem. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. I um I want to give a little bit of context for our listeners. Um, 
dejected about her relationship with her father, Daryl, played by Tom Skerritt, a teen girl, Sylvie Cooper, played by Sarah Gilbert, grows closer to a fiery fellow student named Ivy, played by Drew Barrymore. But as much as Sylvie craves Ivy's wildness, Ivy in turn is attracted to Sylvie's comfortable home life. Ivy seduces Daryl in an attempt to get to, sorry, to have the life for herself and also steps to kill Sylvie's mom, Georgie, played by Cheryl Ladd, who is seriously ill, making it look like Sylvie is the guilty one. Poison Ivy opened on May 8th, 1992, against Basic Instinct, White Men Can't Jump, Beethoven, the player, and of course, the Mighty Ducks. It would go on to make $1.8 million on a $3 million budget. Um, as we mentioned, the movie obviously was a, was a box office uh, failure, but uh, a huge video and cable television hit. I wonder why. Ended, yeah, who knows, right? Uh, where it ended up making lots of money for the studio and spanned three se- three sequels. So there was a Poison Ivy 4 somewhere out in the world. Uh, Poison Ivy has 41% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 36% from audiences. Roger Ebert gave the film two and a half stars, which is a little bit surprising to me because Roger Ebert kind of horny on Maine, if I'm being completely I hated honest. I his review of this. Yeah, I this movie, it sucks. More. I agree, but I'm going to read a little bit of it so that you can rail against it. <laughs> um, Poison Ivy resembles another recent film, Folks. In one crucial aspect, both movies are about evil characters unsuccessfully played by likable actors. Folks was a comedy that had Tom Selleck as a man trying to murder his parents for the insurance money, and Poison Ivy stars Drew Barrymore as a devious Lolita who moves into a family's life and seems ready to kill the mother marry the father and replace the daughter this would all seem plausible if drew barrymore seemed even slightly capable of doing it um you know he really his whole thing um was casting in the review it seemed to be like i can't buy these actors doing these things which feels like he just misread the film but i mean whatever (laughs) Yeah, it's not the first nor the last either, time. Do so. Some of you have never been seduced by a Tom teenager, Scarrett, yeah. and it shows. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was just like, "What are you talking about?" Like it, it. He and he poses the idea that Sarah Gilbert should have played Ivy, and I think that's the most bonkers, stupid idea I've ever heard. <laughs> And it, it, it requires Drew Barrymore's charm and someone who looks like Drew Barrymore for yeah. any of this to be plausible. And, you know, I also just don't think of Ivy as devious. I think of her as a child in survivor mode. And yeah. the the guilelessness of her is what, to me, makes it work. And I just could not understand his perspective in this review i it was one of the dumbest reviews i've ever read by him what this movie gets that i think scared a lot of uh men who wrote, wrote about it scared is the wrong word but you know what i mean threatened is maybe a better word is that like it understands that um men who have sex with vulnerable teenage girls are often just like exploiting them are always just exploiting them, I should say. And it is like, the, you know, American Beauty like turns that into a fantasy. But like Ivy is a person who has nowhere to turn and is like cornered into a situation where she ends up living with this family. And like, then they all kind of exploit her in different ways. Sylvie's like the healthiest exploitation because that's just like two teenage girls, you know, exploiting each other, which is what you do. But like Until they're... The end. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there is this like quality to this movie that I think is, I don't know, it is a little threatening to a Roger Ebert and like 
I think, you know, you, your brain just like misses the point at a certain point. It sort of glances off of it. Now, I really want to see folks because that sounds terrible. <laughs> I, I do. I have a question for you guys because um, I'm curious, obviously, what you think. But this movie sort of, um, I don't want to say it spawned a genre necessarily, but I think it certainly helped fuel it, which is this sort of lethal Lolita the kind of slut slut exploitation genre of sort of young women using their sexuality as a weapon to destroy families and such. And I, I feel like, first of all, I think it's a misreading of sort of that whole oeuvre to a certain degree. But then I also kind of feel like there's this clearly a a, a a money-making scheme in it as well right the idea of like these studios being like listen we can put hot women doing this stuff and people will pay to see these movies or rent these movies or whatever and i guess i'm sort of my question to you guys is can those things both coexist i mean i guess to some extreme to some extent they did because this genre did exist for for a short time but i'm kind of like do we think that all of these filmmakers and these writers were attuned to the, the subtextual, metatextual stuff that we're talking about? Or do we think that there was just sort of this exploitation of young women as, you know, uh, villains or whatever, weapons? I think Kat Shea was very aware because... It seems that way. Yeah, she. I mean, she was also a actor who worked mm-hmm. in exploitation films. Mm-hmm. And she hated it hated right, it right, right, right. so i think that and i think that the the script is too tight and clever for there to be a lack of awareness there's no way that some of the setups and payoffs were accidental like the the dog out the gate and how it's set up as a mercy killing and i found that very uh, upsetting but yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah. It's it's very clear that mm-hmm. she is setting up the idea that Ivy like that that's a mercy killing. Yeah, I know absolutely. And how that comes like I just feel like there's too many little things like that mm-hmm. for for Cat to have been just like accidentally doing that. Yeah. Um, oh, I think I think she was absolutely aware. I guess I, sure. I was. I, I mean, it, it's. I guess the question was less specific to this film and more to sort of the genre of, of, of movies that came out of this, of young hot women being used as sort of, you know, femme fatales and what have you, which I think we can just say the Alicia Silverstone career, pretty clueless. (laughs) Well, there, there's that. There's also like, you know, there's a little Reese Witherspoon in that, you know, that freeway movie. And like there, there, there are, there's a bunch, you know, there's, you know, Alyssa Milano, like there was a, a lot of this kind of like straight to video cuspy kind of movies that, that's sort of what I was referring to. I, uh, I I just need to break in and read a review, read a uh, line for a, a sentence from the review of folks from the Los Angeles Times. Yes. Here we go. This is the Los Angeles Times writing about the film folks in 1992. If gays and lesbians think they're getting a bad rap in the movies, consider the filmic lot of the elderly. First stop or my mom will shoot. Now, folks, where are the Gray Panthers when you need them? I thought that was a bad joke, but there actually was an organization called the Gray Panthers which was basically and like like ageism is a real thing and like they were fighting back against it but i, I sure. gray panther seems like maybe a weird thing to call yourself i'm just gonna say that i'm just I, gonna I, say that it is i mean okay. there it's an incredible line from that i mean that review is clearly just like 
bonkers. But I mean, whew, I don't even. It's like, really yeah, it, it is. It. it is this weird thing of like, this is. I'm gonna. I'm gonna bring us back on topic. I promise. But there's sure. this weird thing in the '90s of like, well, listen. This kind of oppression exists. Therefore, why do we care about this kind of oppression? Yeah, yeah, and like yes, you're constantly yes. like butting up against each well, other. Well, there's a lot. I mean, it was a, a weird sort of mutated version of what aboutism. You know what I mean? Of the like, yeah. you know, uh, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Where you're like, well, I mean, the gays should relax. Old people. That's the thing <laughs> we should be worried about. You're yeah. like, um, I think I think they can both be a thing. Yeah, yeah, and and so so to bring this back on topic, which is Alicia yeah, yeah, Silverstone, yeah. obviously the uh-huh, thing uh-huh. that you yeah. naturally suggests itself from me sure, talking about. Sure, that. I think um, there is this quality too. When I saw the trailer for, I think it was the Babysitter. Mm-hmm. Like I was I was obsessed with the trailer to the Babysitter. I've never seen the Wait, Babysitter. Which, sorry to interrupt you. Which the recent Babysitter? No, no, or... no. The 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 Alicia Silverstone one. Do you mean um, the Crush? The sitter, the crush. She's in a movie about a fucking babysitter. I think it's the crush, where she's a babysitter and and she seduces uh, Carrie Elway's, I believe. Okay, sure, sure, sure. Yes, that's correct. The crush. Anyway, uh, oh god, she's fourteen in that movie. Yeah. Okay, she's she's the daughter of his landlords. Well, I interpreted it as a babysitter (laughs) movie for some reason. Um, The uh, (laughs) the the thing about that movie is like all of these movies, especially when they're like directed by um you know directed by there is a movie straight. called the babysitter is she yes. in, it? in it yeah oh, yes. then, okay then i take it yeah. i take it back yeah. i take it all back because i thought i was with you i was like there is i remember this movie am i losing my mind that's why i looked it up yes yes yeah. the, ba- the babysitter is yeah i yeah. apologize profusely and um thank you phil i appreciate that um the, uh, i know because I, I i my association is the crush but you're absolutely right and like they're yeah. both, I, I think that it must have been the. Why crush can't we have both, on. Phil? Yeah. To your point, we can, <laughs> and we did in the mid nineties. Um, the uh, uh, yeah, no, that I, 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 it must have been cr- the crush. I'm thinking of though, because of when I would just lay and watch movie trailers over and over again on the pay per view channel on my satellite dish. Nice. But like, there is this thing in the crush mm-hmm. that is the male gaze falling on a younger teenage girl. And like, there's a flattery to that, that like, I really responded to because like, I mean, there's a lot of things that are wrapped up in sexual desire, but um, especially for women and especially for women who are attracted to men and especially for teenage girls who are attracted to men. And I'm like slowly like slotting down and like, I'm in all of these categories. (laughs) There is this like weird flattery to, oh, an older guy's paying me attention an older guy's looking at me. And that gets transmuted in uh, a lot of media made by, again, cis straight white men that is sort of like, well, you know, she was into me, therefore, as opposed to like, you know, I need to have the boundaries that uh, should exist. And like, I think Poison Ivy understands those boundaries should exist. And a lot of these movies are just like, well, this girl was into it. And like, maybe she was, but also you've totally fucked her up for life. So, yeah, there's, I mean having having never been a teenage girl i can't obviously i don't have the experience but i'll just say that i do imagine and obviously i'd like you know you guys to chime in but th- th- there is a, a a power dynamic that exists there <laughs> there's a baby on there's there, a baby yeah. um there's a there's a power dynamic that exists there right where i imagine as 
as a young woman, you start to realize that men are paying attention to you. And I, I, I imagine that that is a mind <clears throat> that there's just a whole oh, bunch boy. of shit going on there. Um, and, uh, I don't even know how you navigate that necessarily because you're (laughs) (laughs) even now. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, truly like this, it's, it's unfair to some degree biologically that you're thrown into the deep end of all of that when you really aren't mature enough to understand it. Um, and it's, 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 I imagine it's a horrible thing to deal with. This Can I just thing... talk about my like personal life and how that tied into Please, this? Absolutely. It, it, it does yeah. really strongly tie in. And I did not realize how much it was this thing that I needed and sort of, I just knew that I, Ivy, I felt like I got Ivy and saw myself weirdly in a way with that film that made me really come it was this comforting thing to me sure because I I was not a girl um I was this you know I was called a tomboy I was always unladylike I was always this that whatever and then and like people kind of left me alone at a certain age to just Mm -hmm. be this little gremlin who was running around (laughs) being like you know, Batman. I used to like walk around and like find any like costume jewelry I could find and like be like, I pity the fool. And like, I was just this like weird, like amorphous creature. And like, yeah. then I, I had this, I don't, I was like 11 and I just got tits overnight. Like they just shot out of me and I, they've basically not grown since. So for my size, I'm, I'm a petite person and you know i just suddenly had like c cup boobs <laughs> and i was just like what is this <laughs> what do i do with these things <laughs> and it was <laughs> deeply weird and uncomfortable for me but what happened was suddenly overnight everyone expected me to just be like a girl and a very specific type of girl like i went from being a tomboy to a slut in like a matter of months, just because my body changed and people perceived me as this thing. And I was still walking around like Mr. T and didn't know how to do any of the things that people expected me to. Mm. But I do think that there is this thing that happens. Like, I know (laughs) I'm about to sound really like, arrogant and like shitty but like I think like I was like perceived as a pretty girl and I was like the first girl who kind of had boobs in the class and I think that this thing happens to those girls or people who are perceived as as pretty girls who might not be but um who look that way Mm. um my parents got a call like at one point and I they were told that I was distracting the class that I was distracting the boys in the class and I was just like merely existing yeah I was like hanging out with my bros the same way I always had but I just suddenly had these like dangly bits and everybody was like pissed at me for it 
and expected me to behave a certain way and just like projected a lot of that stuff onto me. And I think Poison Ivy gave me this framework of like how to catch up with performing femininity. It gave me this like guidebook of like, oh, this is how I am supposed to act. Like this is the, this is what's being expected of me. And like, this is how I do this thing. And obviously that was so misguided. (laughs) Like, I also just feel like Ivy, like she doesn't even have her own name. Like everyone projects her identity onto her and she's just sort of trying her best to survive and just like desperately wants to be loved and like is just morphing herself into whatever works. And because she looks a certain way, she's just labeled as this thing and this construct. And I really got that as like a teenager who had a certain look and people Mm -hmm. expected me to behave a certain way. I mean, everything you're saying is just fascinating, but also just like, I'm so empathetic to how it feels like overnight you become a different person and and how the world perceives that um that's completely out of your control do you know what i mean like this is this just that you just biologically all of a sudden like had these attributes and then all of a sudden society says well you have these attributes so you have to act a certain way like that it's all super fucked up like it's super patriarchy craziness yeah Yeah. and like there is just a certain thing of like you're a hot girl now yeah. and yeah. it's just like what i didn't even know i was a girl what what, what do you mean right, right, right. how am right. i supposed to be hot yeah <laughs> like, but also like there's and... just something so um lazy about it too to some degree like just it's so it's, the, the aesthetics of it the idea of like you meet some sort of you know physical ideal to some degree and thus you need to act a certain way because of it i just think that's insane but I mean, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that Ivy is definitely a character that people did that too. I think before the film starts too, she has, we get hints that she has sort of understood that this is the one power that she's been given. Like this is the way that she can survive is by performing this role Mm -hmm. and that she has absolutely nothing, but that thing that that she's a hot girl and like people want her to do that song and dance for them and be charming in that very specific way and i think that what's really interesting about the scenes with sylvie Mm -hmm. it is that we see that drop it's so subtle but that was something i really noticed on the rewatching. is that she seems like a human being in mm-hmm. these scenes with Sylvie. Like she's talking about her nose ring feels like a booger. Yeah. And like, okay. she, it, it, she's just more like a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's such a subtle choice in both the script and the direction. Mm-hmm. And I love it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> she is a, it drew it's so funny too because you know on its face drew is perhaps an odd choice casting wise and i only say that just because um 
she had just never kind of played anything really like this before to some degree. And I think that's part of it, right? Like the director was really, like really wanted Drew. Like it was a whole thing. Like she was like, this is the person she makes the total. And, and I think part of that is because um, you're, you're watching this sort of um, a person that you don't expect to be this way, slowly evolve into this thing. Like, I was thinking a lot about the aesthetic that Ivy has in this movie, mostly in the first time that we see her, the, the, the blonde hair with the dark roots, the, the tattoos, even though they're fake until they're not, um, the leather jacket, the whole aesthetic that she's putting on feels performative to some degree or another, right? Like it does it. it and, and I think that that's absolutely in the same way that, that, that Sarah Gilbert uh, in Sylvie's character is also performative, right? Like she's got kind of this like nerdy kind of introvert Daria kind of vibe to her. Um, and which, which doesn't seem like that far from Darlene on, on Roseanne for what it's worth. Like right. this, this isn't, you know, a huge leap from, from, from that role, but like that performative quality that I think every teenager goes through. I, I loved that that was sort of the entry point, the way into this film was to watch these two people on the cusp of trying to figure out who they actually want to be rather than who the, rather than this performance that they're putting on for, for, I guess their peers or whatever. Well, yeah, those quiet moments between them and how yeah. both of them shift yeah. and just became become people. I just mm-hmm. love that. The tryhardness of it felt very real to me. You know what I mean? Like when they're together, they drop that and you're seeing them sort of as who they really are to some degree, at least in the beginning, but what I tapped into anyway, for, from you know my my personal experiences as a teenager, um, you're just you're 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 desperate to at least for me to um, I wanted to stay off the radar. I didn't want attention particularly because I felt like the attention that you got more times than not as a teenager was negative, mm-hmm. and so I, I think it's interesting the way that they kind of find each other neither of them really have many friends that scene outside the outside darlene's hat darlene sorry sylvie's house um protein slip why would you call her darlene yeah i know crazy (laughs) um when she's like i don't really have any friends i don't really know what to do but do you want to hang out like that that felt very real to me Yeah. yeah Yeah, it was cute. It was yeah. there's just tenderness yeah. like thrown yeah. in, and I just totally. think it's lovely. Um, Drew Barrymore, I thought was a perfect choice for this role. But yeah. can I talk about the one time in which her mm-hmm. performance absolutely derails? Sure. Um, I, I think she's so good at playing the wild child, and I think there's a lot of like Drew Barrymore's childhood and and sort of like sure. history in that. But like playing a poor person. <laughs> There's this moment in the the tattoo shop where she could not sound more pop. She says, sorry, you don't get to teach me to read. How awful for you. I think she's pitch perfect Mm -hmm. and her performance and her performance of performance. Mm -hmm. And it's so layered and the performance is absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. But that is the one moment that made me like, laugh because she's not a not not great as far as class 
uh, issues. There's yeah, there's a dissociative quality to Barrymore's performance in this movie that I was kind of holding against her a little bit, but I think mm-hmm. the more we talk about it, I think it works. I think she's like, yeah, what we're what we're talking about here is just like how when you're a teenager, you kind of figure out a gender performance that you can carry through to adulthood, especially like when we were teenagers. I actually don't oh know how God. old you are, Lola. I was a teenager in the 1990s. And like um, the, uh, yeah, the thing where like, oh, you have this series of narrow slices of like how you can perform gender and sexuality that you are expected to fit into. And I didn't really fit into any of them. So I like turned myself into a couple of them and was like, I'm just going to try and do this because that will distract people from who I really am. Unlike Phil, I wanted everyone to pay attention to me because that was how they wouldn't actually see me. And like, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it is this thing of like, I mean, I got through however many years of a career where I just was like, well, I've watched a lot of TV. I know a lot about TV. I can make myself the guy who's good at knowing things about TV. Because, like, being the guy who knows a lot about pop culture is, like, a way you can perform masculinity. And, like, that was the thing that I figured out. And it slowly sucked the life out of me. And now I'm a target mom. And that feels very <laughs> real to feels me. Real. Yeah, yeah. right. So, yeah. yeah, it is like this movie is so smart about Sylvie and Ivy are figuring out how to perform gender, how to perform womanhood, how to, you know, and like Sylvie's also, I think, figuring out her sexuality. That thing at the start where she's like, some people say I'm a lesbian, but that's not true. And you're like, OK, all right, sure. Sylvie. <laughs> the lady Maybe don't it protest. Is. It is. <laughs> I um I do want to take just a quick sec to talk about Drew Barrymore, just in terms of like the 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 career arc of Drew Barrymore and where this kind of falls in that. Um, only insofar as that, like obviously she comes to you know ET is the first thing that anybody notices her in, and she's in a couple movies, Firestarter, Cat's Eye, what have you, as a kid. Um, but it's in '92. Obviously, this film comes out. She's kind of honestly in, in a bit of the wilderness. Uh, she's in two other films in 92, Waxwork 2 and Gun Crazy, neither of which I've ever seen. She kind of comes back a little bit in 93. She's got a she's in Wayne's World 2 and then Bad Girls in 94, Boys on the Side, Mad Love, Batman Forever is when she's starting to sort of re-enter the uh the the Hollywood mainstream and then Scream is really I think what puts her back on the map in a big way because then it's like wedding singer ever after never been kissed like then the the drew barrymore run really starts but it is interesting and she's obviously talked a lot about you know the struggle she had personally as a teenager and in the 90s vices and any number of things and um i i think that that she is one of those um uh happy endings one of those great stories where like a a sort of uh, thrown into the limelight very, very young, obviously comes from a, a, a famed Hollywood family and all that. But um, it, it is sort of a miracle that she pulls herself out of all of that and finds, you know, not just fame and success, but, you know, um, some sense of normalcy, some sense of, you know, all of that. Like, I, I, it really is a success story that's worth kind of highlighting. Have you watched her talk show? It's kind of fucking good. It's, it's kind of fucking it's good. Kind of great. Yeah. Did it's, you watch the great. interview where Sarah Gilbert talks about how yes. she was yep. her first kid, girl kiss? Yeah. And she's oh, like, we were just I rehearsing, right? When we were making out in my trailer. 
so cute. It's yeah. I mean, it's really her her talk show. I think really taps into um, the just really adorable kind of mom energy that she has, um, or or that sort of has materialized over the over the last few years for her. Um, she's also just she's just like incredibly charming and watchable and winning, and you just you want Drew to win. You know what I mean? And and that's why I think you know um she was such a perfect fit for all the rom-coms that she's been in because you're just like yeah i who doesn't want drew barrymore to succeed and find love <laughs> i don't know um but yeah i i i wanted to kind of just unpack that because i do feel like um she doesn't really do roles like this ever again right like she doesn't ever really play um uh she doesn't she just doesn't really do dark movies quite honestly like she doesn't she's kind of stayed away from that stuff and i i i you have to wonder whether or not it's because of the stuff that she went through as a teenager not wanting to kind of go back to that stuff but still like or she just found success in you know in in doing other things but uh it's i I don't know I, i i love her i think she's great in this movie and i'm thrilled that she was able to sort of find a way um to find you know real huge success but anyways. is is scream the turning point for her i really it think felt it like is. it to me yeah yeah i mean 96 it's a big movie and then 98 is wedding singer so it's i, I think that wedding singer is like that's the that's the 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 bona fide that's kind of like when everyone's like oh okay this is we're ready for drew to be you know everyone's america's sweetheart or whatever what do you think, Lola? I thought she was so much more famous than she was. I think that, <laughs> sure, like, sure. she was just, I, th- there's this picture of her with, like, daisies in, in her hair that's mm-hmm. from, like, the early yes, 90s. Yes, yes. Like a Rolling Stone and, shoot. Yeah, like a, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, I feel like that was in everyone's bedroom that I knew. Yes. And she was just, maybe she was just this teenage icon. Yeah. And, and we all thought she was, like, this world-renowned superstar just because she was so important to us um but i had this perception of her being like one of the most famous people in the world well she was she was in a lot of magazines like no and again i'm not this is i don't want this to sound like i'm deriding her in any way but like she was in a lot of magazines she was on letterman the the infamous when she flashes letterman she stood on his desk and flashed him in like the mid 90s like she was kind of playing into the sort of playful wild child kind of thing so i think that i imagine that's why she felt so ubiquitous in a sense yeah i think she was like there was a before the time of influencers there was like that kind of thing where people could just be sort of still in magazines all the time yeah um yeah and I think she had that, too. I remember, like, always reading in, like, in Us Week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Oh, totally. Yeah. It, it should also be said, too, like, you know, Bad Girls, Boys on the Side, Mad Love. These aren't movies that necessarily, like, you know, caught on fire necessarily but these were still big studio movies like and she's in ensembles and she's playing kind of this hippy dippy kind of flighty what have you and that's kind of and and that really does feed into the rom-coms that come down the road you know a few years later this is all just to say like i do think i mean she was you know in 94 she's probably i mean how old is she forgive me for not knowing this but um yeah, I mean, I figure she's... She was like 19. Because she's like right, 17 yeah, yes, when yes, she yes. made this yeah. movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, yeah. I think that's all part of it. She's an attractive young woman. They're going to put her in magazines. I mean, I, I get all of that. I like... I'm realizing that if she was alive today, she would be like Sophia. Like, if she was a teenager today, she's obviously alive. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, did, did something happen? If she, if she was a teenager today, she would be like Sophia Coppola's daughter on TikTok, like, making yes, yes, these yes. videos and, like like... There is a quality to her that is like you can there's something eternal about this kind of woman. And uh mm-hmm. I, I really I don't know. I, think I was why never her show's a hit. I think it's yeah. why like, yeah, I mean Yeah. She has aged perfectly in like all the like what you want a woman to be at every age. And like I'm I'm not saying that dismissively. I think she's genuinely this, you know, she was genuinely like the kind of sexy bad girl. And then she was like, the girl you want to date. And now she's like, I wish Drew Barrymore was my mom. And honestly, both myself and my child wish Drew Barrymore was my mom. <laughs> I do think, too, and I don't, Lola, I don't know if you've watched her show at all. But, you know, it's what, what I find, one of the things that I found really endearing, and I don't, I mean, I haven't watched it a ton. I follow it on TikTok, which endearing is how I see most of it. Endearing is a great word for her, actually. Exactly. She, she's... Yeah. um talked a lot about dating and being on like dating apps at her age and trying to sort of like (laughs) navigate all that sort of stuff and I just find it so charming and so human and lovely that she's so kind of like open about that stuff um yeah I I I do think that there's a there's an enormous open-heartedness about her as a person which I think radiates or has radiated through her career over the last you know 20 some odd years I think I think there's a quality to her on the talk show that like uh, like Oprah Winfrey could get people to open up because you want you didn't want to like disappoint Oprah. There was like a quality to Oprah where you were like I want to tell her everything. And Drew Barrymore there's like this quality where like people will just tell her stuff because A cuz that's the expectation of what happens when you go on her show now, but B sure. because there is something about her that just feels like you're kind of like just talking to a friend. And like it's that, guileless. that quality. Yeah. yeah yes. The guileless yes. is a great word for it. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that that yeah. also plays into this movie though. You know what I mean? I think about the first time 100%. that, that, that uh, Ivy and Sylvie talk and that all the stuff we're talking about is there in that scene, right? Like, yes, she's playing a little bit, you know, a little bit rough around the edges or a little bit trying to be more of a badass, but like that drew Barrymore is still there. And I think that's part of, 
why Sylvie connects with her. I think it's part of, you know, again, the, the cypherness and the kind of the layers that, um, that Drew brings to the, to the role. I think that's why I wanted to watch it over and over again was I wanted to hang out with Drew Barrymore. Like I wanted to spend more time with her <laughs> and yeah, be like absolutely. friends with her. So I just would kind of like, she was an old friend, have it on. Like totally. she's just really charming and lovely. And I think that she has a magnetism that's really special because there's just a touch of innocence in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I think that, and you mentioned this earlier, Lola, and it's something that that really radiated for me as I was watching it, the, the, the LA-ness of it, that sort of early, mid-90s. I did not grow up in LA, so I don't you know, necessarily know what that feels like, but um, the, the locations that exist in this film, where they are, um, it's not necessarily a seediness per se, but it just, it's, it's not glamorous. It's very kind of like, oh, I just happen to live in this city um, kind of vibe. I love, you know, Ivy asking to be dropped off at Olympic and Fairfax, in which Fairfax, you know, yeah. is very, very close to where uh, where I live. Um, where I know, grew up. Like it's, Olympic it's, and Fairfax yeah. was like the corner I grew up on. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's so funny to me. Like it, there's just, there's a specificity to it um, that really made it kind of come alive for me. And you, you know, you having grown up here, I do sort of now. I'm just like imagining a young Lola running around these uh, these these streets is is just kind of amazing to me. Yeah, and the tattoo, the scene with the tattoo was really interesting to me because it like it seems over the top. Yeah, and it is, but it also was weirdly realistic because I, I got a tattoo when I was 16 on the Sunset Strip, and it was like this weird moment in punk where like gross out like just being like the nastiest human being was like kind of a thing and like there was always some guy named scab or something who was like just like his method of flirtation was just by like being revolting and Uh I feel like that was just such a a a moment in time like I don't think I thank god we don't really see that anymore (laughs) but it was just so real. Like, <laughs> that scene with the like gross tattoo guy was just so real. And it was like such a specific type of guy that existed in the 90s in Los Angeles. You know, it's um, funny you it's funny you bring that up because that scene to me felt very real in the sense of this older man seeing these two girls who he knows are not 21 but he's giving them these tattoos anyway um kind of hitting on them a little bit too like there's just all that kind of stuff mixed into the scene that gives it but it's all kind of played off as a joke but there's still kind of a little bit of realness to it that it's it's pretty gross sorry emily i didn't mean to cut you off no, no, you're fine. You're fine. I think, uh, A, when I was performing masculinity, I should have been a guy named Scab. I think that sounds great. <laughs> but one, one of the qualities to uh, uh, these 90s movies, 90s and 2000s, I would argue, is they're sort of caught between this extremely reactionary, conservative pushback against the 60s from the right. 70s and 80s. And then kind of where we are today in the 2010s and 2020s, where we have like a much more mature understanding of a lot of these power dynamics, but actually society hasn't changed that much. So we're like kind of grappling with that. 
and the 80s and or the 90s and 2000s are like this weird place where both of those things are true at once so you have movies like this that exist in this extremely reactionary conservative space but also are kind of like but also teenage girls like they like to kiss each other right like we know that to be true (laughs) it's like it is a fascinating and i think that's why so many of these these movies like have so much to dig into even when i don't like them that much because they're in this interesting cultural milieu that like you know there's something to be said for figuring your shit out and like uh this really does feel like an era when hollywood is figuring shit out like because i i was thinking about this earlier when we were talking about gender and sexuality and stuff and i had a baby so i couldn't say anything but um <laughs> baby was so mad right today i don't know what was up with that um the, was she i was i didn't know the baby was mad. Eh, you know yeah i i was muted so it's fine okay um the uh there is this quality of like i love today's teens and 20 somethings and how queer and open and how smart they are about all of this i do kind of feel like there is a sometimes occasionally an attempt to read that openness and queerness onto the past and like i had to fucking make up the language for what i was for who i was once i had it obviously once i found it like that gave me a sense of solace and i think like it is easy to underestimate how hard it is for someone like Sylvie in this movie to like find a way to define herself, to like find a term to place on herself that seems like it makes sense while also like accepting that no term will describe you 100% perfectly ever. And like that, that is a thing that I think this movie captures really well. And like a lot of these movies about teen girls in the nineties, including things like clueless that are just like, I need a word to define myself and I don't have one. I don't know what that is. And like, I think, yeah, I think some of that is just like growing acceptance of queerness, but also it's just like we didn't have the internet. We couldn't Google shit. God, I sound old. I'm so sorry. Well, no. Same, same though. And like yeah. I loved I so. loved Ivy's bisexuality with that was like they never call her that, but her open desire and open and raw desire for the world around her mm-hmm. was something as a bisexual person. I didn't get to see at all, you know, in the nineties, that was just not something that was explored all that much in media. And I also liked the, the sort of just quiet way it was shown it, mm-hmm. where it wasn't the few times you did get to see it in the media. It was just like, kind of like over the, t- like this person is a bisexual, which basically means yeah. they're doing threesomes for men or like some weird thing that just like, I didn't actually identify with at all. And there's just, yeah, an open hearted desire for the world in her that I really got and understood and didn't get to see a lot. Um, so that was really thrilling to see. I think there's a lot of good about overt representation about, you know, a character stepping out on a TV show and saying, I'm bisexual, I'm trans, whatever. There is, I think, also a beauty in reading yourself into a movie like this, in finding space for yourself, especially in, in queer readings that I, I you know, I, I don't want to besmirch and I don't want to I don't want to lose. Like, I think there is value in that, too. I think sometimes representation 
because most film and TV shows are, I don't know if you know this, they're a little bit shallow and kind of surface level. Like that really? often happens. Yeah. That uh, So, you know, someone will be like, I'm bisexual. And then they're the bisexual. Whereas a movie like this, where it can depict bisexuality in a way that doesn't ever, that makes it feel amorphous and, and sort of fluid in a way that, you know, it, it certainly feels to me living that experience. Yeah. I, I, I want to kind of, um, unpack something in the movie that I I'm still a little unclear as to why it exists in it. It speaks to identity, which is the whole brief moment when we're led to believe that her, that Sylvie's father is black. Um, oh my God. I was fascinated by this thing. Why did this, oh. why did this happen? <laughs> oh, I can tell you exactly as a teenager please, please. who wanted to completely reject the reality of my life. Okay. Um, that is, I think, why it happened okay. is I think that like I, I went through like a little lying phase um, mm. when I was not quite this age, I think a little younger. Okay. Um, and it was 100% about just rejecting the reality of my life. I, see. I okay. just didn't want to be okay. in the reality of my life. So I would invent another one. Mm. And it wasn't for attention. It wasn't for anything. It was just that I didn't like my life. And I wanted to create my own narrative. And that's what I think is going on with that character is she hates her dad and she wants to like create this other dad. Um, and okay. unfortunately, and like the stupidness too, like this Rachel Dolezal moment of yeah, like, like, that's why my hair is curly. That choice is yeah. so dumb and white. Yes. Um, but I think that the motivation <laughs> comes from a place of like rejecting. Fair enough. I, yeah. Yeah. I, um, my, I grew up in my sister and I grew up in not the best situation and we're both adopted and she is darker skinned for a white person let's say like and so she would sometimes say this she'd be like you know what i'm adopted we don't know who my parents are we don't know that i'm white you know mm-hmm. and like then she met her birth parents and she was white but like um it was it was this thing of like saying yes this situation i am in is not the actual situation i am in i was cursed with the fact that i kind of looked like my adoptive parents so i could never like get away from that but like she had this like out and saying, you know, maybe my maybe my dad was black, which for all she knew at the time could have been true. Probably not, but could have. Um, yeah, you know, you remember when the O.J. Simpson trial happened? And, like, she, my sister looked exactly yeah. like his oldest daughter, and it was very strange. So, Oh, I see. So, like, yeah. yeah, so she had that element. And, like, I think it is this thing of, like, I want to escape this situation, as Lola said. Hmm. Yeah, I, that, that... I, that makes absolute sense. Um, I, when it was happening in the film, I was just sort of like a little flummoxed by it and unsure as to why it was happening. But I, I appreciate that you guys were able to explain that to me because I was just like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I feel like Kat was just trying to let us know these are teenagers. Like mm-hmm. these are okay. just teenagers. Like I think yeah. that's what that moment served to tell that, us that makes total sense right trying, trying on identities yeah yeah. Is, yeah it's you know it's interesting because i i was as you guys were talking i was thinking about the daryl character a little bit too and that you know he's obviously as we discussed sort of he's having his own identity crisis in terms mm-hmm. of uh who he thinks he is or maybe who people perceive him you've got that guy at work that says he must own half the valley and i'm just like i don't really understand daryl's success exactly like i don't understand how being like an anchor on a 
on a news show made him this wealthy, but sure. Um, but, but there is sort of this, and not to overread this film necessarily, but there is kind of, he is on television and there is this perception that goes into that too, which is this identity that he has on TV as opposed to the person that he actually is. Um, all of those things are kind of butting up against it too. Um, there is sort of that element of metatextuality that exists for Daryl's character, which I find interesting. And, and, you know, Tom Skerritt, who you you referred to earlier, uh, Emily, is a, a very attractive man. He is a very attractive man. Um, he, this year, is in the, the Picket Fences show. He, the, There's that, a that... Picket... Oh, oh, I thought you were saying this year, 2023, and I was like, they're no. rebooting Picket no, no, Fences. No, 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 no. <laughs> they're, they're, as far as I know, they're not. Um, I mean, the original Picket Fences uh, premiered in 1992. Fucking slaps. Which slaps. <laughs> that show wrote... Like rules, um, which I which again kind of shows like Tom Skerritt's got range, guys. Like I think that people kind of, um, you know, he had a, he had an interesting career, has an interesting career. I mean, I think he sort of he pops in Alien, and that's kind of the first thing that he does. Um, he's obviously in Top Gun. He's in a bunch of things, but like at first when he first first popped up in this movie, I was like. I don't know about Tom Skerritt in this role. Like, I'm not sure that this is necessarily the guy I would have gone with. And then by the end, I was like, Tom Skerritt's the perfect person to be you, this You role. and Roger Ebert were like, hey, and he At just never I got on like, board. He just never got on board. Yeah, he he just, did, I got on yeah. board. By the end, I was like, no, no, no. This is actually kind of genius casting. I can't um, believe you don't think that he's extremely rich. Because as we all know, the richest man in L.A. is KTLA guy who does their Oscars <laughs> red carpet coverage. Like... He has the most money. Yeah, or yeah. or uh, Dallas Reigns, the weatherman for uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and syndication, like because he was like a general manager, like yeah, he would have been rich. I'm not saying he would have. Those been guys like always owned like laundromats in LA. Like that was another thing is like everyone I knew. I was I also identified with the class thing with Ivy because like I went to like a private school and I was not like a rich kid and everybody else was sure. rich. And um, I thought exploration of class, especially in Los Angeles, was so spot on and the misery of, of some rich people. Um, but totally. yeah, like all those like rich people would like also own like a ton of like strip malls or laundromats or whatever. Really? I remember my first girlfriend always had like rolls of quarters that she would steal from her. She was loaded, but like she would like go and steal these like rolls of quarters and we would go to islands and like pay with these like Can rolls you please of quarters. make a TV show about young Lola, please? <laughs> Cause young Lola sounds amazing. She sounds like she's got stories to tell. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, they definitely do. But <laughs> 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 I just, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I think that, I just, I think this, this also is so much of like an LA perception thing too. Like, I think that the city is perceived as sort of, you know, Hollywood, this, that, and whatever, but it is still a city and it's still, but at the same time, like, it's a, it's a weird place to live. And it's, I imagine it's a weird place to grow up. It was a very weird place to grow up. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and uh, like, it was interesting also, cause this was the year that the riots happened yep. and the way that it's a very white film, but the sort of like hints at what's going on mm. 
in Los Angeles mm -hmm. and it doesn't acknowledge any of that obviously but like sure. the way that the dad is talking about the streets and drugs mm -hmm. and just the all of that tension that and class tension and racial tension that was building in Los Angeles that couldn't be ignored and was about to be in this tipping point moment. I did like that, that it at least hinted at some of those elements. Um, there is a one, there's a moment where I almost wondered if they wanted Ivy to not be white because Ivy says how very white of you. And mm. I was just like, oh, I wonder if that was the original intent and that would change the movie in i think a very interesting way yeah. um yeah yeah no for sure you you'd lose the vertigo-esque element of taking over for cheryl ladd but also like that would make a lot more sense of sylvie saying by the yeah. way my dad was black yeah like, that, that would make a lot more yeah it's you know or rather it would give it a different spin i think it makes sense but like yeah Go ahead. Contextually, that is really interesting, um, Lola, in terms of the riots happening in L.A. and sort of where black cinema is at this point in 92 as well. I mean, obviously, at some point, we're going to talk about Malcolm X. You know, you have movies like Juice. You have you have a lot of sort of, you know, Boys in the Hood comes out the year before. Um, there's just a lot of stuff going on in terms of the black experience in Los Angeles. Um, and I, and, and it is interesting that, um, this film makes a conscious effort to kind of skirt that a little bit, which I think is interesting. And then yeah, it's not the main character is really weird though. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's not, mm, not no, weird. I love that. <laughs> but yeah, it's... I mean, it's, I, yeah, the, there, there is this sort of, there is a class thing going on in this film for sure. Right. Like there is this sort of Ivy definitely radiates, you know, kid from the wrong side of the tracks, quote unquote, to some degree. And I think that there's sort of the haves and have nots. And I think that that plays into the vertigo that plays into the Ivy uh, persona and what she's trying to kind of um, infiltrates the wrong word. But I think, you know what I mean, trying to sort of get into that. Um, she's trying that, to survive yeah trying to survive. like at, she's poor and she's trying yeah. to survive like to me yeah. that was absolutely clear yeah. absolutely. and yeah. um I think that it was weird to me talking to people about the movie that like people didn't get that and I was like sure. oh of course you don't get that like <laughs> it was just like rich people just like sure. I don't think they understand the motivation of survival, even like the the title Poison Ivy, like it's a survivor plant. Like it is a plant that is perceived as like maliciously poisoning human beings, but it's just trying to survive. Yeah. And that thrust of Ivy's choices being a desire to survive, I think was something that I just completely understood and was very interesting i think it's something that cat shea understood obviously um and yeah that was a a thing that was really tense in los angeles at that time too sure. was class was such a thing that people were like the 80s there was this sort of glory of the 80s thing 
where that was really starting to just get to this tipping point of it not being sustainable anymore and there being a lot of class tensions Hmm. and um yeah i just found the exploration of that in this film really interesting and interesting how a lot of people just miss it yeah yeah it's you know i and and i'm as guilty of it as anybody if i'm being completely honest because you know i i think i watched this film on far more of a surface level than i should have i like to think of myself as a as a person that actually <laughs> uh you know uh latches on to subtext and what have you but i do think that um the noir components, especially in the third act of this movie, in terms of some of the turns of plot, which I don't think are um, graceful or nuanced as as maybe I would I was hoping they would be, and I think that I got lost in that stuff and in the sort of noir pastiche, if you will. That certainly in the third act of the film, I found myself kind of um, losing the 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 character stuff. Um, mm-hmm. That's just, and it isn't to say that that it's why I love this podcast. It's why I love uh, having you guys on to sort of, uh, quite frankly, steer me uh, in the proper directions that this film deserves. Because I do think that, like, there's just stuff that felt clunky for me. You know, Sylvie piecing together that Ivy was in the room before her mom died because she was humming a song. It all just, you know, there's just, you know... Daryl deducing that she was driving because of the bruise on her chest, like just stuff that you're just sort of like the bruise MacGuffin moment was so like camp noir. I kind of love that stuff though. Like sure, I love Hitchcock. Sure. I loved really sure. campy noir type things, but ab- I-, I hear you like the way that it just like zooms sure. in on like the steering yeah. wheel, just bouncing off her breasts. Like <laughs> it like... is. I mean, but when you say, when you couch it that way, I'm just like, yeah, it's totally on purpose, and you just need to be like on its wavelength. That that and I, which I completely think is is fair. I, I you know the thing I do find interesting is that the end of this film was not originally the end of the movie. Um, she wasn't supposed to die at the end originally. Um, she uh, Ivy essentially just kind of gets away with it and 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 leaves at the end. And I guess studio or someone. Um, wanted more of a sort of like climax of of this big sort of like death scene for ivy um they they literally recorded the vo that sylvie has at the end of the movie like a day before its release or something like that like it was it was that uh up against it do, do you guys feel as though ivy deserves to die that that's the appropriate no, way for this film to it's end it's just devastating but of course she dies i mean it's yeah. and i do love at not I, I hate I love hate the red shoes parallel of this mm-hmm. final scene of like we must punish women for ambition like that is just what we 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 have to throw them on the tracks as a society we cannot allow them we cannot allow for their survival methods to work we have to punish them for wanting and for going after that survival um and it makes sense to me that they have to kill her but it is a very serious bummer (laughs) it is a very serious bummer emily what are your thoughts on the end it is a thing where i think she has to die for the movie to like complete its arc but yeah it's fucking sad like i i you know i think that 
what I think is so smart about this movie, again, is I think everything's filtered through Sylvie's perspective. So there is a heightened paranoia to her. Like the fact, the scene where she's like, oh, I figured it out because you're humming this song, like is crazy. Like it's not a thing that, that's not a leap any human should make, but also she's right. And to me, like a lot of the experience of being a teenage girl is that just everything in the world feels just totally wrong. And if you say it, you're like, well, no, you're, you're crazy. That's just how it is. But like, you're right. Like that paranoia is on some level correct. So yeah, I think the ending of this movie is that Ivy has to die because it is ultimately Sylvie's story. And it is ultimately about like her living through this, this tragedy and then like compounding it and like, Mm. like, the sort of there's a lot of movies from this period that are like open the 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 box of queerness and then very carefully close it at the end um and say well all that's all over with we did it and like this movie does that to a degree but i think in a way that it's like yeah sylvie's gonna always be marked by this that's what that final vo says and like i think that is why I'm so glad it's there because I think if it was just Ivy died and that was the end of the movie, it would, it would be a lot less disappointing that fine, a lot more disappointing. That final VO is very much like Sylvie being like, my life is now irreparably changed by all of these events and the ambiguity about whether she's more upset about Ivy or her mother. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good movie. I do love the moral complication around that and around <laughs> how like anyone who wants to think that Ivy is the villain and who is operating from that perspective for whatever reason, I do not understand why people think that, but like, it seems like a lot of people did, um, then have to face this thing of, you know, you think that Sylvia is the victim, but she's the only person who does something that like cold hearted, like there is a, a way in which like the, the mom, the death of the, I'm spoiler alerts. I don't know. Um, like yeah, where yes. that scene with the mom still yes. feels like this. She, it feels as though Ivy really believes that's a mercy killing. Sure. Like, I feel like the film allows space for that. Whereas <laughs> the parallel scene of Sylvie pushing Ivy feels like there's absolutely no mercy. So yeah. then the audience who views Sylvie as this victim and views Ivy as the villain has to face that moral complication. So I do like that the film does that. No, I agree. I I don't, I, I, it it also feels quite honestly sort of in, um, in concert with the movie before it, do you know what I mean? Like in terms of, of the genre that it's a part of, it, it feels as though, once the movie commits, you know, to the idea of Ivy, whether it's a mercy killing or not, killing the mom, like, there's no going back, right? Like, the character has crossed a Rubicon to a certain degree, and it does sort of feel as though the movie is committed to um, not necessarily punishing her for it, but it feels as though uh, it, it it needs to conclude in, in that way. And I think that Ivy just kind of walking away would have felt... Um, I don't know, I- I- incongruent to the to the film that preceded it, but yeah, um, it, yeah, it definitely like I I think I think there's a quality to Sylvie killing Ivy, 
that is very much like okay all this stuff happened and i need to never think about it again but she's sure. doing it in a way that like will constantly traumatize and re-traumatize her i don't know yeah, yeah. it'll um, destroy her for life and and the, just the homophobia of that act too of just oh sure 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 when and how she says that she loves her like the deep fear of that thing that courses mm-hmm. through this film and the tension of her desire for Ivy and how she just snuffs it out in the end. Yeah. I've never hurt anybody more badly than the girl I was in love with in high school. And like, you know, that's, that's just how it goes sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> yeah. Um, on that note, let's, re- let's rate this movie. Um, and then Lola, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on the film that we're covering next week. Um, yeah. So, uh, I had not seen this film. Um, I came into this podcast, if I'm being honest, I came in at a 70. Um, but, um, you guys have, have given me a, a much, uh, richer perspective on this film, which I very much appreciate. So I'm at an 82 now. Um, I, I think that it's, uh, it's a much, much better movie than, um, it's, uh, it was certainly the way that it was perceived and received in 92. And, and, and I'm, I'm happy to see that it's getting uh, a reclamation a little bit now. So that's, uh, that's great. Um, Emily, where are you on this movie? I came in on this at a 90, uh, as, as I think I've mentioned before, I've been ranking all the 92 movies we've watched on Letterboxd. And right now this is, this is fourth for me behind um, Passion Fish and uh, Last of the Mohicans and Candyman. It's like ahead of everything else after those three. Sure. Um, But yeah, talking about it has made me bump it up a little bit. There's still some things I just kind of can't vibe with. I think the score is a little... The score just got me. It's just a little too cheesy. It's like, very it's, dated. Oh my yeah. god! Yeah. Especially that moment where she's in the truck and it turns into <laughs> yeah. like a tampon commercial. Yeah, it's. Uh... <laughs> and yeah, there's others. There's other qualities to this movie that are like have not aged particularly well. But I think it is a, a sort of brilliant depiction of of being a teenage girl and the ways mm-hmm. that that uh, that sort of changes you and affects you and and the way the world sees you. So I'm going to go up to a 93. And uh, queer phobia scale, like textually, the characters are all queer phobic, but the movie knows that. So I'm going to give it a two. (laughs) Fair, fair. Lola, where where were you uh, when you saw this back in the day? And and where are you now? I mean, I was just so obsessed with this movie. Sure, I think I, it was just a hundred. I was just fixated on it but weirdly don't remember any of the sex scenes with John Scarrett. like I think I must have just skipped them you just blocked them out <laughs> I just took that 10% out of it <laughs> so maybe 90% I don't know yeah. um but yeah I I feel like one thing we didn't get into that does make me feel a little weird is like a bit of the exploitative aspects of like using a teenage girl in that way and like just and there are some cheesy bits and stuff like that i I do feel like it there it's not a perfect film i can't comfortably Mm -hmm. give it a 100 as an adult who's seen cinema more and (laughs) but and and has not as much of a A refined a refined or cheesy music (laughs) Um, so i can't resist the cleanness of giving it a 92 nice Um, nice nice I, uh, so I, I, just, ahead. I'm going to go ahead and give it a 92. Great. It's perfect. 
I do. I did want to just sort of mention that scene where Tom Skerritt and Ivy are, you know, the scenes where they have sex, it does feel like they cut around Drew Barrymore with a body double. But oh, they do. There are, sure. there are a couple scenes where it does. It, there are a couple shots where it is very clearly like and like, yeah, that disquieted me, you know, but also, sure. yeah, I don't know. Uh, so next week. Uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Esther Zuckerman about Baz Luhrmann's Strictly Ballroom. Oh my God, that's one of my favorite films of all time. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so uh, how do you feel about Strictly Ballroom, Lola? <laughs> I love that film. I saw that in theaters, which required dragging adults. Like, because <laughs> I didn't have, like, I, I saw that movie in theaters 10 times. I was obsessed. Oh, wow with that movie wow i was absolutely obsessed with that movie and i feel like it was it was like gay without being gay it was another movie where like just the aesthetic <laughs> was so gay and i was just like i want to live in this queer universe and Catherine martin i'm upset Catherine martin has been one of the more formative figures in like inspiring me as an artist and just like the way that she approaches design and creates a universe um but her designs in that are just so cheeky and delicious and I love that it's Baz Luhrmann before he takes himself too seriously and it's just so funny like it is a Christopher Guest movie designed (laughs) by Catherine Martin it's genius and and like I love how it also is aware of itself. Like it's the moment where she takes up her glasses and is just like, I'm hot now. <laughs> like it's just a brilliant piece of cinema. I love that movie. You know, it's so funny because like it's I think I've only seen it once, if I'm being completely honest. And I think I saw it. Have you seen it, Emily? Uh no, I don't I don't I may <gasps> here's this is one of those movies where I may have seen it, but I don't. I always get it confused with fucking swing kids for some reason. And I've seen <laughs> one and I haven't seen the other. Kids. Yeah, no. So <laughs> I will know within five minutes if I, I guessing I have, cause I like Bass Lerman a lot, but yeah, it's, sure. yeah, I've it's seen very Australian and yeah. like, yeah, it's not, it's very much not swing kids. The movie <laughs> that I kind of blend in my brain is Priscilla Queen of the Desert, um, sure. which, That's which, fair feels a little bit more akin obviously both australian both sort of overtly um very theatrical let's just put it that way um but i literally a play before it was a movie uh which strictly ballroom or or priscilla oh i didn't i didn't know that yeah it started as literally theater so it is very theatrical um that's that's really interesting i I certainly saw it post romeo and juliet um, when that was obviously this seismic thing, and I was like, "Oh, I he was has into another his movie." First album. Yes, no, obviously you were. <laughs> you 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 were into him before he was cool. That's that's fair. Um, so I, I think that for me, and I actually Emily think that this will kind of uh, kiss into our our Reservoir Dogs episode a little bit too, of sort of you know the 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 first the first movie of an auteur and seeing kind of how it becomes kind of the, um, the Rosetta stone, if you will, for, for future films. Um, so I'm super excited to watch it. I've not watched it probably since, I don't know, 94, 95. Um, and yeah, I mean, couldn't ask for a more enthusiastic recommendation from you, Lola, 10 times in the theater. That is incredible. I'm a, 
I'm looking at it on Just Watch because I'm I'm gonna have to sure. watch this, you know, because we're not haven't recorded it yet. Yeah. And the four movies that JustWatch.com says people who liked Strictly uh-huh. Ballroom also liked are Moulin Rouge makes sense, Dirty Dancing makes sense, sure. Magic Mike makes sense, The Wedding Singer bringing it back to Drew. <laughs> what? So, the wedding back to singer. Drew. Yeah, that's yeah. so interesting. interesting. I yeah I listen I don't remember much about it about Strictly Ballroom so I'm outside of the well it's about I, some swing kids I hear it's <laughs> they live in- I believe it's in World War II if I'm yeah. not mistaken um no I mean I, I remember the dancing and I remember the costumes and I remember sort of the um you know for lack of a better way of putting it the very energetic camera work um th- these were the things that I remember at the time I'm super excited to watch it again I have no doubt that I'm going to really love it um and I also I, just love how out the gate you can see how Catherine Martin and like he really tries to give her her due mm-hmm. but I don't think people understand how much oh, yeah. she is and I love that you can just see that so clearly from from like the gate like that yeah. is they were this team and they it's so much about aesthetic and you can really see the groundwork being laid in that film Do you, is it your favorite Baz Luhrmann film Lola um you know what it might be I think it really might be okay. because it, I mean, it just holds such a, there is a nostalgia to it. It holds a really special place in my heart and it's about outsiders in a way that's really tender. Um, and you get to see it's, I think that the budgets got really big, which I love in cer- certain ways, but I think there's just a little bit more humor. And since I love comedy, I think that like, that really touches my heart and i think that it's a, just a, a beautiful film that's a really good point I, I i think that just about baz and we'll we'll obviously emily we'll talk about you know all of this on the episode but there there is a part of me that feels like um his humor that sort of forgive the term but that that quirky offbeat australian humor um has gotten lost a little bit. I think you can see it in Moulin Rouge. Like that feels maybe the last time that he actually seemed to be having fun. Like, I don't mean to suggest that I'm sure he enjoyed making Australia and Elvis and Great Gatsby, but like these aren't uh, particularly funny movies. And I, mm. I do think that that's um, a quality of his that that has been lost, I think, over the I, last I, decade. I disagree. Uh-oh. I disagree. Really? You think that you think uh, Elvis I think is funny? The things that people laugh at in Elvis, which is like sort of the the, the wild collage esque presentation of sure. reality, yeah, I think is intentionally funny. I think that he okay. has taken his cheekiness and like buried it into the cinematography and editing, basically. Okay. That's fair. Yeah, yeah I, I think. I mean, listen, uh, we will we will dissect camp in uh in i imagine no short order uh when we record this episode but um lola thank you so much for coming on here again thank you for having me and and talking about um about miss ivy um and and mr lerman a little bit but truly like we can't wait to have you back you're you're the best and where um where where can can the people find where can the people find you where do you have anything you want to plug and also how do you feel about the film Babylon, directed Damien Chazelle. <laughs> I've been listening to the podcast, and uh, I think that you've made me love it. Just your enthusiasm <laughs> is really infectious. You did it. You did, so it. did it. I can't help. I can't help but follow. Emily love did it. She did it. She, she did worked. It. She made it happen. <laughs> I mean, you know what they say. 
only if you turn around one person on Babylon, you've done your you've done your duty. So there that's you go. what. Yeah, I'm getting into heaven now. St. Peter's going to be like, <laughs> you did it. Get in there. Where can people do you want people to find you, Lola? And where can they find you? <laughs> um yeah i'm uh lola kelly i i'm on in on the gram mm-hmm. as lola kelly l-o-h-l-a-l-a and i'm do- i'm actually gonna direct a short film about i just got this short film about uh trans it's a trans boxing film i'm super excited to oh, sounds amazing to direct called pace um and yeah if you want a director or uh actor or a weird person um please hire me i mean <laughs> i mean who doesn't want a weird person though like come on now i, I am mean, like a real a i'm person. really good at being weird show me the money <laughs> You really, I mean, to our listeners, you should be following Lola on Instagram. She is, her stories are fantastic. You can see oh. her, her wrestling escapades and you can see I, all sorts of wonderful I'm unfortunately things. out of wrestling right now. Out, so. Is that it? They like you're done now? in the wrestling. Uh, well, my shoulder got really messed up. Oh shit, so. I'm sorry. I, I'm out for now. I just followed you on Instagram, Lola, and they <gasps> are some amazing they they just have an amazing Instagram presence. I want everyone to know that. Like, yeah. Thanks. They, yes, you are wonderful. You're one of my favorite people. I I I You're I'm so one of my favorite. Oh wow. And the pod um, helped me came out as non-binary. So thanks, Emily's <laughs> podcast episode about the Matrix. Oh, like, oh Jesus. Made me have, uh, <laughs> a weird meltdown that i had to i was like why am i so emotional and i like pulled over my car and was like what is happening thank you and eventually that was one of the catalysts that led me to coming out as trans and non-binary so i'm very grateful to both of you and i'm very grateful to be here so thank you but i'm still more proud that i got you to come out as a babylon fan just to be clear just to be clear I mean, I, you know what? A lot it's less wonderf- dangerous. It's so. wonderful to have a. It's wonderful to have more trans people in the world. I'm so glad to to know you and to know that I could have helped on your journey. But also, I'm so glad that now I can say Lola Kelly, they love Babylon. Babylon fan. I I will say. Um, I remember when when you reached out to me, Lola, to to say how important the the Matrix episodes were for you, and um, they are. I mean, listen. Emily knows how much uh, I love her and those episodes, but um, yeah, just it, it really changed my perspective on those films, and it changed my perspective on so many things. And I'm I'm so thrilled to hear that uh, that it you know made Definitely your life changed better. Changed my too. perspective. <laughs> just for this, I'm gonna drop my baby's finsta in chat. So you yes, can yes. <laughs> I'm yeah. so excited. It, it is an amazing. Uh, it's an amazing I can't wait. <laughs> love it um well thank you so so much lola you're the best thank you we can't wait to you're have you best. back to talk about any number of 1992 movies it's gonna be great um i really hope i get to do orlando with your one because i'm obsessed with that movie for obvious reasons i mean have you seen orlando emily uh yes i have i weirdly i sought out every movie that sounded slightly trans even if it was like i mean that movie is find. That movie's doing yeah. a lot of very yeah. interesting things about yeah. gender and and identity and yes, but um yeah, it's gonna be great. We'll, we'll, we're gonna uh, talk to Orlando at some point. It's gonna be great. I love that movie. Okay. All right.
Thank you so, so much, Laura. We'll Thank talk to you, you soon. Take care. Bye, guys. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.